Good morning, church. There we are. Sorry about that. Good to see you this morning. Before I forget, you look below the outline, there is the closing hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be. We're going to sing four stanzas of those six, one, two, three, and six, one, two, three, and six. There's a saying, you know, that someone's as lonely as the third stanza in a Baptist hymnal, but we usually sing all the stanzas. We're just, uh, but we're just taking those two, not because we don't believe in them, but for time's sake, one, two, three, and six. Page 790, Zephaniah 3 is our text for study this morning. Zephaniah 3, verses 17 to 20. Yes, I remember that we preached on Zephaniah 3 last week, but in, as I was looking at this last week, I thought we should go back and look at these last verses one more time because they touch on a theme that I think is undertreated in our churches today, even as it is under-acknowledged in our culture. And that subject is shame. You notice uh, in our text, he says, the Lord promises that he is going to change their shame into honor, into praise. Shame uh, is the universal affliction of mankind, says Kurt Thompson in his anatomy, his book, The Anatomy uh, of the Soul of Shame. The universal infection of humanity. And I think as we go through some of these topics that are exposed here as providing catalysts for shame, as sources of shame, you will agree in some way or another, you or loved one has been shamed or suffering from shame. Of course, we preach the gospel faithfully in the evangelical church. We preach that that uh, Jesus died to justify us, to, to forgive us of our sins. Uh, but that's the gospel's answer to guilt. Guilt is the, is the language of the courtroom. Shame is the language of the community. Guilt is, is being condemned before a set of standards. And uh, when you repent of it, if you meet the standards, you can be absolved or atoned for in regard to those standards. But shame is to be exposed before someone's eyes. And there's no hope for shame, at least in this world by analogy. There is only comfort in the gospel itself. Do you believe that? Do you believe the gospel is, is truly good news even for the feelings that come as a result of being a broken person in a broken world. Not just relief for your conscience, but relief for your heart and your soul. Well, I want you to look with, with eagerness to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ afresh in this passage, Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 17 to 20. <clears throat> the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors. 
And I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I'll bring you in. At that time, when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you open our eyes? Some of us need to lift up our heads and open our eyes to see you because we're bowed with shame. Some of it by our own doing. A lot of it by not by our doing. Help, you, help us nevertheless, regardless, to look to Jesus alone for the solution to our shame. In Jesus' name we pray it. God's people said together, amen. <clears throat> Earlier this summer, I went fly fishing with my family. We love to do that. Some of the family are newer to that, that uh, hobby or addiction, as my wife calls it, uh, than others. But uh, we were fishing, and uh, it's, it's a custom. It's customary for, for water to splash on a reel, on the rod. It's supposed to be around water. But some of these Presbyterian reels I have that have only been sprinkled became Baptist in this trip. They were fully immersed. I knew from experience that uh, sometimes the cleaning of those reels and the lines can be somewhat uh, expensive. Uh, the experts uh, like to bring the reel in and say, I'll take it apart and I'll put this space age technology uh, to work. I'll apply to it this very expensive uh, ointment that will make it all clear and clean. And, and I'll wipe off the, the line with this special rag and a special expensive oil and so forth. So I was bracing myself for that when I called the fishing expert uh, locally. And she said, um, you don't need to bring those in. You don't need that expensive stuff. Do you have, uh, do you have Dawn liquid detergent in your home? A tear came to my eye. <laughs> in Alabama, that cured everything. It just was a cure for everything. It cleaned out wounds. It could clean out your mouth when you were smart to your mama. It could clean your car, clean the dirt off your truck. It could even send bugs away. It didn't really, but they thought it could. And so here they said, you just use that Dawn detergent. It'll clean your reel, clean your line. Won't cost you anything. I was elated. Isn't that a great feeling when, when you have a need and you find that you have something that will meet that need, something you thought you knew all the qualities for, but here is a new application of it. It has new curative qualities that you did not know were present there before. That's the way the gospel is. We're, we're accustomed to saying the gospel is good news for sinners, and it is. We're accustomed to saying the gospel is this, Jesus died on the cross, to provide the substitution for our sin. By becoming a righteous substitute, he made atonement for our sin. It is true as a beautiful doctrine of justification by faith alone. It is able to remove the guilt of our sin. But do you know that in the Bible, shame is mentioned 10 times more than guilt. 
Shame is that which came into God's creation, is mentioned as first that which was not of God coming into His good creation. They were naked and they were not ashamed. It doesn't say they were naked and they weren't guilty. Now, they weren't guilty and they did commit, they were guilty of sin later. But what is first mentioned is shame. Shame was not there. Shame was introduced by the evil one. He was brought to light by God when he's looking for them uh, hiding in the bushes. And he said, who told you you were naked? Who told you this to shame you? It wasn't I. Is the gospel really a cure for shame? We know it's a cure for guilt when you're measured against a set of standards and you confess that sin and God is able to forgive you and it relieves your conscience. But what about when you're exposed before someone's eyes? An evil individual, a group of people, a culture, a church, before your family. Is he able to take that feeling? Is he able to lift that feeling? He is. We mustn't miss it here at the end of Zephaniah 3. When Zephaniah mentions four sources, not the only sources, but four sources of shame that we can commonly encounter. And he says, to each of these needs, God has the perfect solution in Jesus, the Messiah, who is prophesied by Zephaniah. Ecclesiastical shame, physical, social, moral. Ecclesiastical shame. Where do I get that? Verse 18. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival that you will no longer suffer reproach. Now, of course, in the book of Zephaniah, like the, like the other minor prophets, we've been looking at their false worship, being led as they were by their political and theological leaders. They had, they had corrupted the worship of God. God had prescribed in his word how he was to be served and worshiped, and they had introduced all kinds of other sacrifices, sacrifices to false idols, even sacrifices of their children. They'd corrupted worship. They'd made it about themselves. They'd made it a form of self-salvation, punishment, shame. And God said, you're going to be cut off from that worship. Some of you are already cut off, he says, because you're, you're of the remnant in Israel. You aren't following these false gods, but there's no place in which you can practice true worship because they've taken over the temple and they've corrupted it. The whole of Judah will be addressed. This will be, just be descriptive of the whole of Judah later when they're taken away into Babylon and it's illegal for them to, ser- to serve and worship their God. And though it is not their doing, perhaps though, though, the, though the, it's the Babylonians preventing them from worship or this remnant in Judah at the time, though this, it's scandalous priests and judges described in chapter 3, verse 4, who are keeping them from worship, they still feel somehow it is their fault. Now, there is fault to be found that we'll address in the fourth point. But in this case, I'm talking about those who have been involuntarily removed from festival worship or who, after they have repented, can't find their way back 
to this celebration of worship in the temple of God. It's not a new phenomenon, of course, that political leaders and corrupt priests and pastors could remove people or, or, or discourage people or send people out of their church, take their church away from them. Jesus talked about false shepherds. Paul talked about, Paul talked about those who pretended to preach the gospel. John Chrysostom in the fourth century talked about those who, those pastors who pursue worldly accolades and they reduce their congregations to servile fear. Ecclesiastical abuse, as it's referred to now, or spiritual abuse or, or, or counselor abuse, is not a new phenomenon. This phenomenon of, 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 of narcissists who occupy a pulpit or spiritual leadership or lead a ministry or become counselors who use their who who use their authority and spiritual influence selfishly to build their own kingdoms to manipulate and bully other people and discourage them in the life of the church wounding them now, sometimes that that label can be applied uh, falsely those who have their feathers ruffled or they don't like what they hear from the preacher can say, I'm being abused ecclesiastically, that there's that abuse of the term. But this is a real phenomenon that people's souls can be tremendously wounded by the abuse of spiritual power and authority. A friend of mine who recently brought uh, this theme of shame in a, a new light to me. He's really helped me as a colleague in the ministry. We've, we've worked together in the past. He's a, he's a scholar. He's a, he's a counselor. He's a senior pastor. And he's done some writing and preaching on shame. He tells in his own story that as a little boy, they were, they were very active in a church and, and he was in a Christian school and his parents filed for divorce. He said it was an unbiblical divorce. They were, they were not divorcing for any biblical grounds, adultery or abandonment. They just decided they didn't want to be married any longer. And after they got divorced, his family was shunned and he was shunned by his Christian school. The, 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 the parents of other kids, the parents of his friends told him, you can't play with Chris any longer because his parents are divorced. We don't want that bad influence coming into our home. It took him decades, as you can imagine, to recover from that truly ecclesiastical abuse. Maybe you've been wounded by a spiritual leader, spiritual authority, wounded by their example, wounded directly by them, manipulated and, and run over, roughshod. And, and it makes it difficult for you to submit to spiritual authorities or trust them ever again. Or maybe you're listening by live stream. Maybe you're listening in the future and you can't even, you, you say it's, it's traumatizing to you to even come back into the house of God, into the church. Where do you, where do you go with that kind of pain, that kind of shame? Somehow, you know, somehow those who manipulate you make it feel like it, make you feel like it's your fault. It's, 
make, make you embarrassed that, that you trusted them or, or shame you from the congregation. You, can't, you, you don't want to be seen by them. What do you do? Well, notice the promise. Verse 18, I will gather those. This is the good shepherd. No matter how many false shepherds you have encountered, this is the good shepherd, the chief shepherd, the one who will never leave you or disappoint you or forsake you, the one who is true, the one who knows your name, the one who numbers the hairs on your head. He is the one who can gather you safely to himself and heal your shame. He knows what it feels like. He knows what it feels like to be to be uh, treated unjustly by political authorities as the people in Zephaniah's time were. He knows what it feels like to be mistreated by spiritual authorities. These priests, these prophets made up lies about him in order to preserve their empire. They tried to trap him. They, they, they tried to set up scenarios that, that would be scandalous if he were to engage in them. The, some of the ones perhaps who betrayed him were priests who had taught him in the temple, taught him the basics of the faith. These betrayed him, abused him. How did he handle it? By refusing to accept the shame they tried to foist on him. He always remembered his baptism. When God said, this is my son, you are my son, with you I am well pleased. No matter who has abused you, how they have misused their authority in your life, lift your eyes above that, refuse the shame that they put on it, and look to Jesus, who says, you are my child. With you, I'm well pleased. And if you're pleased, if I, if I am pleased with you, if I have removed your condemnation, no one has standing to condemn you. It doesn't matter what they think of you. There's another kind of shame that is source of shame addressed in our passage. It's in verse 19. <clears throat> I will save the lame. Follows on the heels of, behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. Now, God knows that these, these people whom he's addressing are not going to listen to him. They're going to continue to sin. He's going to have to take them into Babylon for discipline for 70 years. But here he is preempting their shame. He's going ahead of them as the merciful God saying, I know that you will realize your sin eventually. Those who are of the remnant. I know you'll realize it. You'll come back to me and you will need to be assured. You need to be comforted because these, your oppressors are going to try to shame you. Yes, you'll be guilty before me. You confess those sins. I will give you forgiveness, but they will make you shamed. They will shame you physically. They'll take away the ornaments on your wrists and replace them with shackles. They'll put a ring through your nose and drag you like an ox to Babylon. They'll take away your good clothes and give you the clothes of a prisoner. And if you let it, 
That shaming will invade your soul and it will begin, you will let it define you that you are a prisoner, that you are an animal, that you are a lesser human being. Some of you have suffered physical shaming. Shaming because you don't measure up to the latest physical standards for beauty. William Cooper, author of the hymn we just sang, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, thought that his face was deformed and thought that it was a, that it was a, it was a curse from God. He battled that shame for his whole life, even though he could at moments have this surprising light that would break in on him from the gospel. He he'd look in the mirror and he would, he would feel shame because of his physical appearance. Some of you suffer that. Some of you are, as the Bible would say, lame. You have physical hindrances that cause you embarrassment. You have a different learning style. Your brain doesn't work the way other brains work. Whatever it is, you feel shamed. Even though you know you didn't have anything to do with it, you, you feel shamed. Some of you have been abused physically. Some of you have been abused sexually. There's a unique evil to both of those kinds of abuse that somehow you feel shamed for what that evil person has perpetrated against you. How do you find relief from that? What does Jesus do for that kind of shame? Well, you notice he, 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 he highlights the attribute that is necessary to cure the disease. He's already told us that he gathers those who are cut off from their church. And now he says he saves the lame. And maybe you think this is the, a bad translation. He should, if this is a physical problem, he should say he heals the lame. If it's a spiritual problem, you save someone. That's but that's something we import from our Western tradition. It's not part of a biblical cosmology. There's not this great divide between physical and spiritual. God, from the beginning, has shown his concern for a human being as a living spirit, a living soul. A body soul representing, reflecting the image of God. So that when Adam and Eve sinned against God and ran from him and sought refuge, he sought them spiritually, but he also slayed an animal and robed them with the skins of that animal for their protection and for their, to cover their shame. And God has shown concern for physical the physical needs of his people throughout redemptive history, the, the Old Testament laws for public health, for guarding the vulnerable. Jesus, of course, touched people and he healed their physical diseases as well as their spiritual diseases. But he didn't make a distinction saying, now you have a soul problem, so I'm going to save you. You have a physical problem, I'm going to heal you. Just think about Mark 5, the beautiful story of of the woman who had an issue of blood. She was hemorrhaging. It's captured in one of the hymns we love to sing, Heal Us, Heal Us, Emmanuel. This woman had a, 
She was hemorrhaging blood, which made her, according to Old Testament law, unclean. She had to stay away from the community. Of course, it was an embarrassment to her. It was, it was shaming. But she heard about Jesus. And she thought, if I can just make my way to him, I can touch him and get out of the way. Maybe I can touch him. I know by touching him, I make him unclean. But if he doesn't see me and nobody else sees me, and maybe it won't cause him any trouble. She presses in through the crowd. She touches his garment. She's immediately healed. And he feels the power go out from her. And he looks for her. She admits that she's the one who touched him. She was terrified. Jesus, in a moment, relieved her shame. Daughter, your faith has saved you. Not only did he convince her that he was her savior and the satisfaction for her, for her guilt, but he relieved her shame. He saved her. God promises not only the, when Jesus saves you, he not only joins your soul to himself, he joins your body. There's the promise of resurrection. There's the promise of living on a reconstituted heaven and earth. God's salvation is good news for the whole cosmos. Whatever is causing you shame physically, Jesus died for that too, suffered for that too was raised to life in a physical body for that physical shame too. Thirdly, he relieves us from social shame. Again, he uses that word gather. He gathers the outcast and I will shame, uh, change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. Shame is a, is a power we know in our southern culture in particular. It may be a rare uh, idea in our broader Western culture, though it's not in other cultures. Older cultures know shame very well, though they have no solution for it in the gospel. We have the gospel and we, don't, we often don't apply it to the problem of shame. But shaming in our subculture is, for, is to put someone outside of our community. It's to be exposed to the eyes of somebody that you, that, who is important to you, a group in particular. It's important to you. We fear many things, but we don't fear any of them as much as we fear ostracism, shame from our community. It's sometimes easier for us to face moral failure than ostracism. We would rather admit to being adulterers than to admit that we're bankrupt. It's less important to us that our sons lose their virginity than that they lose a bid to their fraternity. More devastating, perhaps, to a young woman that she's going to miss out on graduate school than it is to have an abortion. I've seen these tragic triages. Shame is a powerful force in our subculture. 
But we have the gospel that is the antidote. And we have the gospel that is the antidote in this place we call the church. Kurt Thompson, whom I've mentioned earlier in his book, The Soul of Shame, another book similar to it is Ed Welch's A Shame Interrupted. Both of them make this point that shame is disintegrating, a disintegrating force in our mind, in our relationships, in our communities. And Thompson says in particular, healing shame requires being vulnerable with others with embodied actions. Healing shame requires being vulnerable with others in embodied actions. It means coming into the community of the church and being bold enough to say, I'm in need. I'm sick. I've lost my money. I'm divorced. I'm remarried. I'm a child born out of wedlock. I've had a child out of wedlock. I've run my business in the ground. Or like your pastor, I battle depression. I don't enjoy saying I battle depression. But I need the church. I need the church to counteract the shame I feel for that weakness that loss of faith, whatever other things I can say about battling depression and anxiety. And you need the church too. You say, I can never say, I can never say who I really am, what I'm struggling with in this church. Well, here's, here's our deal. I'll make a deal with you. If somebody in this church makes you feel ashamed for your condition in life, your situation in life, what you confess to them, you just tell me who they are. And the depressed pastor will talk to them. This is going to be a safe place for you. We're not participating in the culture's shaming. The culture only knows one way to deal with those who commit sins against whatever it defines as sin. All it can do is shame, turn away, reject, cancel. We're good at it too. The gospel knows what it is to say whatever it is that you have done, whatever condition you're in, whatever has been done to you, it doesn't matter. Come into our family. You'll find a safe refuge. The final source of shame is moral. It's when we really have done wrong. These first three, it's not necessarily that you have done anything wrong, but people, your own conscience, systems are able to shame you, make you feel shame. But here's, okay, here are these people who are going to be sent into captivity and they are being sent into captivity because they've rejected the prophet's. And they've rejected God's warm 
uh, their, his, his, his passionate call to them to come to him. And so he sends them into exile. And eventually they will realize in their captivity, we have sinned. And then there will be shame. They will be ashamed of themselves. God knows that ahead of time. So he goes ahead of them and he says, when you feel that way, I want you to realize I've provided the sacrifice that will make it possible for me to sing praise over you. I'm going to bring a savior to you and he will gather you together and he will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. He'll restore your fortunes before your eyes. What kinds of fortunes? The fortunes of being in a right relationship with God because of the atoning substitutionary sacrifice made by Jesus. Yes, that satisfaction of our guilt on the cross, as well as dealing with the shame that we continue to punish ourselves with, even after we have been openly acknowledged and acquitted. Just how do we go to Jesus for that? Well, it'll take reading scripture in ways that you just haven't noticed before is looking for that word shame. And noticing the many, the myriad of promises that are made to you when God says, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to take care of your shame. How is he going to do it? He's going to do that through the cross as well. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 2, that it because, it's because of Jesus despising shame that he went to the cross. Sometimes we translate it this way. He despised the shame of the cross. But that's not the way... It's translated, he's despised shame. That's why he went to the cross. And in dying on the cross, facing shame, taking that shame on himself, every form of shame. Shame of being cut off from the worshiping community. The shame of of physical humiliation. Jesus was naked on that tree. On that cursed tree, he was naked. He's only clothed in our, in our art. He knows what it is to be sexually abused, physically humiliated. He knows what it is to be cut off and cast out. He died outside the camp. His own turned on him and fled. People esteemed him not. They did not. They hid their faces from him. He was rejected and humiliated and shamed in every conceivable way. For your sake. That he might die with that shame. And rise in victory over it. And become as Hebrews 12 also says. Not just the founder of your faith. But the hero of your faith. You you need someone. Not just who can say to your conscience. Your sins have been forgiven. You are right with God. You need someone who will also stand up for you. And say. And no one is allowed to condemn you. And no one is allowed to shame you. Because I've declared you to be my beloved child. I'll quiet you with my love. I sing praise and approval over you. You need to hold that up. To those who make you feel shamed, you need to hold it up to your own conscience when it attempts to shame you. The church with embodied actions 
hugs, handshakes, warm embraces, inclusion, eating together. These embodied actions for the vulnerable will put the lie to shame and stand out as a light in a dark culture. I was remembering with a friend earlier this week something that I experienced in the first church I pastored. A young man came up to me one Sunday evening after I had preached and and he said, you know, I've been attending this church for a while and I I really like it and I, I, I would like to become a part of this fellowship, but I don't think I belong here. I'm, I've just gotten out of a drug rehab program. And, and when I look around at this church, the people dress real nice and I, I, there are seminary students here and there are professionals here. I see families and people seem to have it all together. I don't... I don't think I belong here. Do you have a church you could recommend to me that would be a more appropriate for somebody like me? Well, you're standing in the narthex or the gathering place of that, the outside of that sanctuary. And I said, let's, let's stand over here out of people's view a little bit in this cloak closet. And I just want to, I just want to tell you the people I see. Some of them I'll point out because I have their permission. Others I won't point out, I'll just describe them. I said, now, now see that person over there. He readily would admit this. He is a recovering alcoholic. He's an elder. He's taken a leave of absence from the session now because he fell off the wagon again. Here he is worshiping with his family. Now that man over there, he would also tell you, he's a recovering drug addict and... Uh, and he, um, but now he's a, he's a street preacher. He's standing uh, nearby to him. I won't point him out. As a young man who grew up in this church, he just got out of federal prison for a crime I'm just not going to tell you about. Then across the way is another man. He's an elder too. When he and his wife were dating, he got her pregnant and then he drove her to have an abortion. There are other people out there that are denying their alcoholism. Some are on painkillers. They deny that. There's a man out there who is hated by his wife and children because he works all the time in his big corporate job. There are people who are divorced, people who are remarried, married scandalously remarried. There are a couple of women out there that are standing with their children whose mother, their mother was a prostitute. They don't know who their father was. Then there are lots of materialists, lots of workaholics. There's a, there's a young doctor out there that just got his first paycheck and he's uh, sporting it by the, the uh, audacious way he's dressed in those fancy clothes. We're, 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 uh, we have all kinds here. He looked at me with a wry grin. I said, what do you think? You think you belong here? Yeah, I think I belong here. I said, you may even improve the place. (laughs) It's the way the church ought to be. It's the way this church is too, by the way. Don't let anybody make you feel 
that you're not good enough, don't fit in. You belong here because this is Jesus' church. And Jesus died not only to forgive the guilt of sin, but to remove the shame as well. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your magnanimous invitation to us. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The promise that if we're not ashamed of you, you will not be ashamed of us. The sacrifice of dying as a curse in our place, not just as a legal substitute. Lord Jesus, thank you for the good news of the gospel, which is never ending in the blessings we can unpack from it. Help us to believe on you, some here for the first time ever, and believe on you as a whole Savior. Others who are wandering, those who are far away, those who have convinced themselves they don't belong, heal us, Emmanuel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.